Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Lara Putnam, is a professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. She has been one of the best chroniclers in real time of sort of organizing on the ground in American politics, especially in Pennsylvania, where where she lives, um, but also nationally, and with Pennsylvania being a state that's really in the national spotlight. So, so welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. You know, I, I want to get into some sort of contemporary issues that people are debating, but I think it's useful to set the context um, in terms of, you know, the 2016 election happened. Uh, it was a kind of shocking outcome to many people. And part of the response to that was that there was an incredible flourishing going back to the winter of 2016-2017 of sort of grassroots organizing happening in a lot of parts of the country. I mean, obviously, like I saw that happening in, in D.C., but you really explained it, right? Like some of what, what was going on and, and why it mattered in a way that has been interesting to me for for years. So can you can you talk a little bit about like what what happened then in response to that shock? Sure. You know, what happened was that in place after place at a very micro level, at a very small scale, people who were shocked by the election of Donald Trump, and parentheses, there were people who were less shocked by the election of Donald Trump, which included some people on the right and some, for instance, communities of color who were not shocked to discover that racist rhetoric did not disqualify people for office in the United States. But people who were, who had been perhaps Hillary Clinton supporters, people who were themselves college educated, often disproportionately women in the suburbs, people whose you know lives and sense of self was really the antithesis of what they thought Donald Trump stood for, took it as a personal affront and, and made the political personal in that moment. And that's really powerful, that sense of sort of injured, like this is not who I thought we were. And so in place after place where you had concentrations of, of especially women, but not only women who sort of fit this demographic profile, they you know, rapidly leaned in to enhanced activism. Sometimes that was about people who had canvassed together for Hillary Clinton in the last days of the 2016 election, reaching out to each other again the following week saying, what are we going to do? In some places, it was groups of people who had worked together as an, an Obama 2008 snowflake organizing team, reaching out to people who they hadn't, you know, talked to maybe for five or eight years, saying, how can we take action to to try to change the direction that we see our country going with the election of Donald Trump. Sometimes it was people who had chartered a bus together to go down to the Women's March, who talking to each other on the bus on the way back from the Women's March started making plans for you know, what they could do. And what was really striking is that in place after place, as people had these conversations, very rapidly they found local targets for action. Even though the, the messaging from the sort of national groups that began stepping forward and became identified, I think, in the broader like media narrative as leading, quote unquote, the resistance, the focus of those different groups and leaders tended to be on national politics. And sort of the spark here had been national politics in the sense that it was the election of Donald Trump. But in the local groups, people very rapidly found local targets for action as well. 
And and so you saw, right? I mean, if you go back, you look, um, Daily Coast Selections has a great spreadsheet about this. But throughout 2017, like Democratic candidates in special elections do way better. Like they, they drastically outperform. And these are, you know, two of those were U.S. House of Representatives races, but it's mostly random state legislatures seats, right? And you're seeing a high, just more people paying attention to these kind of local-ish politics stuff than had been in the past. And and it's inspired by Donald Trump, I think, but it's not about national politics. That's exactly right. And I think the first nationally visible repercussion of this was like the Virginia House of Delegates elections in in 2017, which didn't just happen and wasn't sort of a just a wave of of sort of, you know, sentiment on the path of voters. It was because a massive amount of local grassroots energy had gone into full scale, full spectrum door knocking, you know, phone banking outreach for a whole bunch of, you know, local candidates in places where no outside consultants or party people thought it was worthwhile to invest in potentially flipping those seats, right? So in exurban areas and suburbs that had been traditionally Republican suburbs, there were just people running everywhere and they were running much more serious, intense, you know, grassroots powered campaigns. And, and that made a difference. I'm from New York, uh, so none of this really applies, I think, uh, to Manhattan, where, where, where I'm from. But my wife, her parents live in a small town called Kerrville in, in Texas. And, you know, uh, the Democratic Party was dominant in rural Texas 50 years ago and had collapsed to basically non-existence, uh, you know, as of 2015, 2016. Uh, but then suddenly, you know, groups of people who had formerly been involved Involved in raising money for the library and in the community theater. Like they recreated a party organization there and they it's a nonpartisan mayoral election, but they wound up electing the more progressive candidate to mayor there. And, you know, you couldn't exactly draw the lines like how did the library and this mayor's race relate to Donald Trump? But it, it, it seems to me like in some sense, this was, in fact, inescapably about Trump. Absolutely. And that same that same pattern that you're describing, which is sort of people who had been community insiders, but political outsiders taking the networks and connections that they had accumulated over, you know, a life of living in this place and and the skills that they had collected as, you know, disproportionately people who were educators, people who were in the social services or the health services, lots of retired nurses, lots of retired principals, and took that human capacity and those networks and poured them into, sort of re-infused them into local politics. In more rural places, this was often sort of recreating the local Democratic Party from the ground up. And you had what had been, you know, practically defunct, essentially empty local committee structures for the Democratic Party that have been completely reanimated. But the same pattern is actually invisible in places like Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. And so in some sense, the conflicts that we've seen that, you know, the surge of the, you know, true blue organizing movement in New York, the sudden contests over who's going to be elected to these, you know, precinct person positions within the Queens Democratic Party or the Bronx Democratic Party and these ornate uh, systems of absentee voting suddenly being challenged or of proxy ballots being challenged in these. It's the same pattern of new people getting energized, finding what are the spaces within which local political action can happen and just moving into that. But when you do that in Bronx, you, you flow into that space and you find out that there's someone already there. Right. It's, so it's like it's like the, it's like the hermit crab. You you know, you're scuttling along. You find a shell. If you try to move into the shell and it's empty, as it likely is in rural Texas. Great. You grab the shell and you start running with it. In Queens, you run along, you find that shell. There's another crab in there already. It's going to be messy. But on the other hand, that's the way the party is supposed to work. Right. It's supposed to provide some structures for conflict and for for decision making. And we've seen that play out in city after city. And so in, in Pennsylvania, where, where you live, I, I saw a piece you wrote fairly recently. And Pennsylvania is interesting because it it really contains multitudes. But one thing you wrote about was that there was a fair number of sort of local offices where like the same guy would be the Democratic and the Republican nominee um, and where you had not empty shells, but also not like vigorous machines exactly, but these kind of 
skeletal operations that that came into real conflict with newcomers. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's it's been fascinating watching it play out. I mean, on the one, so Pennsylvania has been ground zero for the realignment of the white American electorate, mm-hmm. like shifting its coordinates. And that's been going on since the early 1990s, very especially visibly here, and then was really accelerated by Donald Trump. And so the places that had been the old sort of the strongholds of the industrial Democratic Party are actually the places that were also moving fastest for Donald Trump. Like those were the new voters that he was bringing into the Republican Party. And so you have places where the what still existed of the local Democratic Party machine was sort of sclerotic, aging, white ethnic, very male, very conservative people who, if they weren't like the local Democratic Party chairman might have become a Trump voter, or in some cases, maybe actually did. So those have been pretty conflictive spaces as new voices have, and you know, there are librarians in those places too, and some of them got super engaged and want to, you know, run for Democratic committee or to help, for instance, work as a volunteer to run an outsider for, a, you know, a local campaign who might be a person of color. The, right. These are places that are identified, I think, in the political discourse with the white working class, but they're actually diverse along a whole bunch of different dimensions. But the political system there had not had a lot of space for those minorities of people of color who live in old industrial cities. So it's it's been complicated. But on the other hand, the, the very fact that, that there have been conflicts over and, and some kinds of uneasy, you know, truces and new alliances between old labor, new labor, old party stalwarts, new people coming in, the local party structures and elections they provide structures that keep people in the room to have the argument about, you know, how we're going to move forward. And it hasn't been, it hasn't been like a kumbaya session. It has been impressive to watch people stay in the room together and move forward in pretty productive ways. And in the sort of early returns on this, I mean, we were talking about special elections in 2017, Virginia House of Delegates, really all through the 2018 midterms, right? The electoral outputs were like really strong for Democrats, right? In all kinds of places. And so you saw like a big suburban surge, uh, you know, away from the GOP, but also to some extent a bounce back in some some rural areas. And frankly, just like a, like a lot of wins on the board. Um, and I think people got pretty just like enthusiastic uh, about everything. I mean, you said there were, there were national groups identified with, with the resistance, but there was sort of, I don't know, I just like, a, I feel like a like an era of good feelings, right? In which national fundraising entities were like, hey, this is great. Like we have all this, all this grassroots enthusiasm. And I think there was maybe not enough attention paid to some of the ideological cross currents here. I mean, I know you were writing all along that a lot of these movements were not super ideological, but at the same time, like there was a lot of ideological organizing happening in, in national politics. Sure. And I, there, for sure, there was like a, there was a lot of sort of use of ideological frames and labels to describe what was going on, which was an okay fit for what was visible at the national level, but probably partially misdiagnosed what was happening locally, right? And strikingly, you know, a lot of the sort of local activists that I'm describing to you had a much savvier and less rosy take on what was happening locally. I mean, they on the one hand, through 2018, there were, just as you say, you know, some suburban and exurban congressional seats were flipped and people were excited about the possibilities of pushing down ballot, but the swing that had already started at the top of the ticket of congressional districts that had been firmly for Romney, maybe split between Clinton and Trump, but had become by 2018 really anti-Trump at the top line, you know, how far could you push that move away from the Republican Party and new allegiance or new willingness to vote for Democrats? How far down ballot could you push that? But the opposite thing, of course, was happening in areas that had been had maybe, you know, still voted for Barack Obama at least once, but then but had been where the swing towards Republicans had had been moving down ballot pretty steadily. And again, that's not really a story just about the 2000s. That's a story about what happened over the course of the 1990s that Donald Trump just accelerated. And it was clear in in Pennsylvania in 2019, which was a municipal year in which the national press was only talking about 
you know, the presidential primary and all the grassroots folks I know were obsessing about these local ballot, you know, the municipal, who's going to win the county council in such and such a place. It was clear that in these old industrial strongholds, that democratic allegiance was, was just continuing to crumble at these lower levels. So in within Pennsylvania, Democrats lost control of county councils in a bunch of the same areas where Donald Trump had run, run strongest. So there was, I think, less of the, the adoption of a sort of rosy notion that the only question is, is America going to embrace Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren? That was not the question that folks were asking themselves at the grassroots level within Pennsylvania. Right. And I mean, was there a lot of sort of ideological zeal among new organizing people? I've only spoken to to relatively small, you know, communities of, of people who've been sort of newly organized. And what struck me about the people I've spoken to is they're kind of, um, I don't want to be pejorative about it, but uh, slightly uh, empty policy content of a lot of their vision, right? Or to be more uh, positive about it, like open-mindedness, <laughs> like w- w- willingness to hear a lot of ideas about what it is exactly that they should stand for. But it's like the political engagement started with Trump won, I'm going to the Women's March, I'm going to reconnect with the people I talked to there, we're going to get involved in the lower races. But then it's like, you have to find out what what are the actual issues that these lower offices deal with? Sure. Although I would say, I mean, as a sort of partial corrective to what you're saying, you know, there are people who feel really passionately about procedural democracy and and you know mm-hmm. ballot access and and you know gerrymandering and and fighting against restrictions on voting. That's not not political. It's not the economic dimension of policy issues. So that part of what happened was that a bunch of the new activists in suburban areas, in sort of the upscale suburbs in particular, tended to be people who were more flexible or agnostic on some um, economic issues, which in part because if you already had very firm convictions, you weren't the new activist, you were one of the old, you know, you were already cemented in. So we're sort of taking a self-selected group of the people who were, you know, persuadable or or less invested in um, a sort of particular economic diagnosis or a particular class analysis or a vision of politics is fitting into economic policy in a particular way going forward. But we're really invested in sort of strengthening democracy as they saw it and 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 in the pieces that they saw is really crucial to that. I mean, the people who were likely to have been hyper-mobilized against Donald Trump were not people who were hyper-mobilized against a particular economic piece of what he had to offer, because that was not his uniqueness, right? His uniqueness was, a, was as they saw it, a style of doing politics by demonizing others and sort of trashing institutions. And so the people who were hyper-mobilized by that were people who you know, were in favor of a multicultural functioning democracy, and for whom those issues are the things that they won't compromise, are less willing to compromise on, whereas the other stuff, you know, is secondary. Let's take a break, and I, and I want to talk about that multicultural aspect. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that healthcare is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies 
that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I feel like one of the real paradoxes of the past four or five years of American politics that I'm still trying to get my head around is that so much of the sort of counter-mobilization to Trump, you use the term multicultural democracy, um, has really highlighted race and racial justice issues. But it has been primarily led by white people, right? It's not, it's not an electoral backlash happening inside communities of color. And it's not really people of color who were shocked to see that a racist politician could succeed, right? It was white people who kind of had their vision of America shattered and then and then went to go organize for a different vision. Yeah, for sure. It's true. I mean, in, at some level, as you pose that, it already shows us a lot of the reason there, right there. So, mm-hmm. You know, people of color were not shocked by what Donald Trump's election revealed about America. But also in African-American voting patterns, there was no space for a massive surge against Donald Trump. Whereas within the white suburban electorate, there was tons of room to move. There was a lot of elasticity where they were sitting on the you know voting spectrum. And it's not just about sort of individual voters' elasticity. Folks who live in upscale, very purple, white suburban America have pretty politically heterogeneous networks. So if someone starts flipping, they've got people who they know, who are persuadable by them, who they can flip alongside them, which is different from like the folks who live in like a urban, whether it's an, you know, urban upscale, hyper-liberal bubble, someone could persuade you to shift your politics five steps to the left. Probably you're still not going to know that many people who are voting differently than you are, whose vote you can flip. But the suburbs were sort of full of flippable people in a different way, right? So that the shift in more white spaces has been, you know, there was there are more people to shift and there's more power, there's more leverage enabled by having new passionate volunteers on the ground. But I, I mean, what what's interesting to me about it, though, is that I do think that a lot of those newly engaged white suburbanites seem very interested in racial justice topics. Right. That it's as you say, it's not surprising that African-American communities don't see huge voting swings because like, how could it swing? Right. Um, But like the quantity of Black Lives Matter signage that I saw in coastal Maine over the course of 2020 was striking to me uh, because, you know, those are white people hanging out those signs. Right. And that that's a real change in American politics from where things were 20 or even 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think that's that's borne out by, you know, a lot of public opinion polling and so on over the summer and into the fall. Again, it was among white people and especially white folks with a college degree among white Democrats. That's where you see the biggest shift on questions of, you know, belief and structural racism. You know, in some ways, Donald Trump accelerated the identification of anti-racism with the Democratic Party and anti-anti-racism with the Republican Party, right? That right. and that that heightened the salience of how you felt about anti-racism. Then it it you know furthered some more sorting or realignment along that line. And so then on the other side, right? I mean, especially in Pennsylvania, famously in Pennsylvania, you have the rural areas, the small towns, you have the the non-college white population where uh, the Democratic allegiance had been slipping away uh, for like a full generation in in places like that. But there was an acceleration around Trump, you know, toward the Republican Party. How does that sort of how does that look on the ground, you know, as people are sort of living their lives and watching these new organizations happen and people react to them? Well, the first thing I'll say is that the just as you say, non-college white voters have been, you know, shifting towards the Republican Party and indeed for about a generation. But um, that was accelerated by Donald Trump. It's really not about the most disenfranchised. It's not about the most disempowered, the most impoverished 
uh, folks, those those folks are generally not voting, right? And that so people have dropped out of voting. Um, people whose you know maybe who, whose parents may have had a union job at a steel mill that tied them into a Democratic Party, a local Democratic Party infrastructure, so that even though I live in Denora, my dad worked in a steel mill, he was a shop steward and he voted Democratic. I, like my dad, don't have a college degree, but I'm working at Walmart. I'm not tied into sort of local civic life that's telling me that my vote matters. And there, you know, what happened between 2016 and 2020 wasn't actually things getting worse for the Democrats at the top of the ticket. It was like Donald Trump for himself sort of maxed out his levels of support. He accelerated the trend, then sort of stuck with, we sort of end up with a very similar vote total or vote breakdown story all across the state of Pennsylvania, but a really important surge of turnout on both sides. But the realignment filtered down. Exactly. What maybe used to be, oh, hey, I'm excited about this Donald Trump guy turned into, I understand the Democratic Party to be the party of people who love immigrants and people who want to take down white privilege. And that's not me. I like Trump. So I'm voting Republican on the county commission. It became a much more thoroughgoing realignment. That's right. If you look across spaces, the correlates of vote choice, it's kind of like down ballot candidates in Pennsylvania had in 2020, the 2016 election. So the the torque of, you know, shifts across the state in in vote patterns that Trump had achieved in 2016 filtered down ballot. And even for statewide candidates, you know, by 2020, it really looks like there are two different elections going on. There was the election that Donald Trump had, which was just where he was in 2016, but no changes. But the earthquake that Trump had caused in 2016 sort of hit down ballot in 2020. And it was interesting because you can look at the 2016 maps and you see, I mean, even just statewide, and you see that there's a fair number of McGinty-Trump crossover voters. And right, you know, even though like on the top line, Hillary and McGinty did did very she was the Senate candidate for people who don't remember four-year-old uh <laughs> that's a very Senate racist. Hard to believe that you have any, you know, <laughs> listeners out there who are not as obsessed with Pennsylvania politics, but okay. <laughs> but you know, so you might think, right, it's you had two different races there, right? Um both, you know, well-known Democrats, white women on the ballot, and they had similar overall top line results. But at a count level, it was different, right? Like there were people who were voting Democratic in U.S. Senate races, to say nothing of way down ballot, who had flipped to Trump. And that's what's changed, right? That the this sort of Trump voting habit stuck, and so did the Hillary voting habit. Yeah, you know, I would say that the, the electorate that Trump created in 2020 worked for every single Republican except for Donald Trump. Right. He, <laughs> he lost just enough ballot splitters in the upscale suburbs that hit that this massive turnout surge that having him on the ballot drew wasn't enough to get him over the top. But the turnout surge that he caused got all the other Republicans on the ballot to way overshoot the marks that they themselves thought they were that their own campaigns thought they were going to hit. Huh, that's interesting. So now, do you do you seen anything uh, to do with Latino vote in 2020 in Pennsylvania? Because it looks to me, I'm not I'm not an expert in like the ethnic geography of Philadelphia, but to to my eyeball, it seems like Trump does worse all throughout the suburbs of Philadelphia and all throughout the white parts of the city of Philadelphia, but actually better in the Latino and, and immigrant parts. I, I think maybe outsiders don't know this, but a, a lot of the smaller Pennsylvania cities now have substantial immigrant communities that are a big deal politically. Uh, you know, Reading. Reading. Um, I've been to Lancaster, uh, which is almost shockingly diverse. How's that working? So lots of different things happen at once in urban cores within Pennsylvania, as happened nationally. And I think from what I've seen, we were pretty much in line with transnationally, which is itself an interesting point. But for sure, they so heavily Latino districts, communities, swung in their vote choice towards Donald Trump. And I think that the, the postmortem on what drove that is still ongoing in a whole bunch of places. It still is the case that even with that swing, Latino voters were voting Democratic at a higher rate than the sort of equivalent, you know, 
white voters or non, non-Hispanic white voters. Um, and so in communities, especially in sort of northern, northeast PA, where you've had, where the young population and the young population of voters is heavily Hispanic, their presence there is still causing a swing towards the Democrats, even though person for person, there may be less strong of a Democratic tilt than there was in 2016. It's also the case sort of simultaneously in the most disadvantaged urban spaces within Pennsylvania. So the places with the highest levels of poverty and the the, um, highest non-white population. So where the population is 80 to 100% African-American. Turnout was actually down. Voter registration was down. In part, that's because if you were registered to vote in 2008 and then hadn't voted since then, you were taken off the roll. So it was since there had been such a surge of organizing and voter registration around the Obama campaign in 2008, it was always going to be the case that there needed to be new, a sort of new surge of voter registration in 2020 to sort of make up for the 12-year cycle hitting there. And that didn't happen. The, the best guess currently, I think, is that there were multiple things happening. One was that in-person voter registration lagged, but also that the there, there were so many changes around modalities of voting, like what are going to be the voting places? Are you going to be able to vote by mail? There's been another Supreme Court case that's pending, so your ballot needs to be reached by such and such a time. So I think it's an open question. And certainly the, there are communities that were really poorly served by mail-in voting and where the total number of ballots cast fell in a year in which you saw 10% increases you know, in more rural areas and more suburban areas. So the question of sort of what got in the way, what made it harder? or what made people less likely to cast ballots in these areas of concentrated urban poverty is, I think, a really important question moving forward. And I mean, obviously, you know, the pandemic sort of got in the way of traditional registration drives. But I also wonder how that impacted uh, your sort of new organizers in, in the suburbs. I mean, I was struck, you know, in 2017, 2018, in the, in the early days of the resistance, by how much face-to-face stuff people were doing, right? They were holding meetings uh, in, in their living rooms and doing things. And I'm a, like, I'm an internet person. Uh, but for that reason, I'm like such an incredible believer in the power of face-to-face interactions. Uh, I think that really matters when people do things in person. And and I wonder, has that has that had to fade away? I mean, have groups sort of melted away as a result of not doing as much stuff in person over the past 12 months? No, I think a lot of the people who form the core of the groups that we're talking about are folks who have, you know, access to good digital technology at home. And they probably have either a, you know, a child or a grandchild who's going to Zoom school. And so people pretty rapidly, you know, shifted their like group meetings onto biweekly Zooms or something. But for sure, it, it made it harder, you know, if, if all of our interactions are moving through um, mediated spaces. Well, people we're already connected to, we can connect up with and find a new, you know, find a new technology that allows us to meet with the, you know, 15 or 20 or 120 people we were going to meet with. But the possibility of, of having a human interaction that cuts outside of our existing networks was really cut down. So, so those like, you know, meeting someone at the farmer's market, you know, knocking on someone's door as part of a voter registration drive, holding a protest outside in person at which someone's going to stop and have a conversation with you rather than just driving past with their, you know, windows up. For sure, it's the case that the pandemic disrupted what had been some of the really valuable techniques that people and groups had developed to reach beyond their existing networks. That made it harder for people to do the kind of retail politicking that they had been, you know, in training for and and had been implementing for the past three years. All right, I want to take another break, then I want to ask you some inflammatory questions. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. 
You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Okay, so if I was to sort of shorthand this whole process a year ago, or, or even maybe a few months ago, I would have said these are indivisible groups that you're talking about. That that guide was published, it was very influential, a lot of people affiliated under that banner. And I mean, I would have known that that wasn't like 100% accurate, but that's sort of the, you know, you, you got you to gotta refer briefly, concisely to things sometimes. But now we've had a, a sort of significant uh, controversy, a really interesting debate playing out in the pages of The American Prospect that, that you wrote a piece in, that, that is Scotchpole, who I think you, you've you co-authored a, a number of, of stories over, over the past few years with. Um, she weighed in in a very sort of negative light to the, the National Indivisible Organization and the sort of donors to it, arguing that that essentially like national progressive organizations swept in and tried to leverage all these local groups into uh, very ideological, like left-wing politics that is at odds with the kind of initial spirit of, of the organizing that, that was happening there. And, and I wonder, I, I mean, what do you, has there been some, some kind of breakdown there? Well, I think I, I would put it somewhat differently. I say in that rendition, that really puts the the ideological split front and center. And that's certainly something that Theta and Caroline Turville emphasize in their article. To me, that divide is the ideological piece is sort of secondary to a more fundamental difference in sort of theory of politics or theory of change. So the way I would tell the story of how the Indivisible Guide and organization came to play a pretty important linchpin role that maybe the founders themselves didn't quite understand was that, so as I told you, there are all these, you know, new groups are being formed in these very, in this very decentralized way. The indivisible guide rapidly spread among people saw that and were like, oh, this is a great thing to do. These are like useful marching orders that are consistent with what we want to do. And the creation of the indivisible map made it possible for people to see each other and sort of find each other and, you know, go to a single, you know, spot and discover places they could connect outward. So the indivisible national organization through creating the guide and the instruction and sort of guidance within it and the map itself de facto created a kind of, I think that is a kind of third tissue that connected up the digitally distributed organizing techniques of like, we can use digital tools to reallocate text banking and so people can collaborate together. And this, the third tissue sort of connected up digital finding of political information with actual local face-to-face groups so that you were sort of, it sort of channeled people in from the digital into local relational ongoing, sustained face-to-face groups. So that's incredibly valuable, right? And that's and that was like a role that you would have thought the Democratic Party would already have been playing, but that's not how the local Democratic Party had been structured anywhere. They, like lots of local parties would say, oh, we don't want to put our contact information on the web because then people will call us. So that's a, that's a kind of stunning way to run an organization, but the Indivisible Guide created sort of infrastructure that people could use to find places to go within their community to find like-minded people to do politics together. So in that sense, that was like pure gold, right? But I don't know that the founders of Indivisible ever really saw that kind of lateral connection to local building 
as being part of how politics happened. I mean, these are folks who had seen the, the Tea Party movement from the perspective of congressional offices. So they were understandably really familiar with what the results of local organizing looked like when it hit the you know, switchboard at the congressional office building, then that notion of sort of the importance of swaying Congress people by uh, shaping which constituents they're hearing from, that's a pretty standard understanding of how politics works within the beltway and among the relevant journalists and so on. And it's really quite different from this commitment to building up local organizing minor office by minor office, school board race by school board race. Now, ironically, that actually the, on the right, it's that local building up that had been happening over the course of the 1980s and 1990s with the Christian coalition, Christian right school board races, some right to life organizing. So actually the Tea Party itself was sort of building on a legacy of very hyper local group formation and sort of nurturing of that. And in the case of this, you know, post 2016 surge on the broad center left, that whole layer got sort of built up very quickly but became really important to the people involved. And I don't know that the national, you know, the leaders of our national HQ, they were not well positioned to see that that was going on and nor were they well positioned by their past experience to think that that was really critical. Yeah, I mean, well, part of what's interesting about it to me, right, is this this, this idea of um, a, a shelling point, right? A sort of an arbitrary rallying signifier. And so this guide is published by people who are smart and who are well-connected enough to get it publicized. And like, it says, like, you should do X, Y, and Z. And then people wanted to do something. And that was something. So they did it. But it could have been anything, right? Like, somebody could have said, what you all need to do is form juggling clubs and and beat Donald Trump. And then there would have been a local organization, right? That then, like, once the organization exists, it can go do things locally. Right. Like it doesn't it doesn't actually matter like why you had originally assembled people. I mean, it it helps if the the thing that you call them in for has some notional connection to the thing that you want them to end up doing. Right. That's like accelerates the process. But yeah, I mean, in the Indivisible Guide, really strikingly, the term member of Congress appeared in the original Indivisible Guide like 67 times. And the term candidate never once appeared. But at the meetings that I was going to. You know, four years ago right now, like by meeting number three, in place after place, people were like establishing candidate recruitment committees and gathering signatures to get people on the ballot to run for these, again, very micro level offices. So would the same thing have happened if we had said, like, come come juggle against Donald Trump? Well, if it had been against Donald Trump, probably because you'd get people with some vague sense of mission together and together they you know, once they're in conversation together, they find this space of sort of adequate overlap for action. They identified what are the areas that we can agree on. And that I think is also just to loop back to your point about the ideological fluidity. I think people rapidly found that there were things they weren't going to agree on among this group of sort of the 30 people or 20 people who they realized they were going to be able to do political action with together. And maybe Medicare for all was not something they were going to be able to agree on. So they just stuck that in the parking lot. You know, we're not going to sit here arguing about national health care policy when there's a school board race that we can go win. So it's it, it, to some extent, it's not so much that as individuals, they don't care about those issues, but that they, they have recognized that they don't have adequate overlap in many groups, they don't have adequate overlap in conviction about what the answer is for some policy issues, and they're just not going to waste their time arguing about it collectively. They'll vote how they vote, but meanwhile, they're going to go win some races. But this was where you, I think you did start to see a real difference in the direction that the national organization went and, and local groups are going, right? So local groups, as you say, they are saying, okay, what do we want to do? We want to win some elections locally. So that means we have to find, in a pragmatic sense, not a disparaging sense, least common denominator points of emphasis. Because like we're going to work together instead of fighting with each other. Whereas the national organization tries to become a player in factional politics, right? Which is like the opposite of, you know, like what, what do the 30 of us all agree on is our platform, acknowledging that we also have other things we care about. Yeah, that's right. And that's, and we've seen that play out in the question of endorsements, right? At the, the explicit brief that the Indivisible National HQ wrote out for, here's, here's why we think that endorsements are good in general across the board. 
up to and including for the presidential race. And they got a lot of pushback on that from local groups for whom, you know, maintaining group cohesion and navigating through sometimes fraught terrain was more important than any notional leverage that would be gained, frankly, which might, the notional leverage gained might not be gained by them, but by right. someone else far away, right? You know, one thing I tried to point out in the prospect piece that you reference is that, you know, not all, so especially in the suburbs, these groups have tended to flow into and revitalize local Democratic Party institutions. But in some places, including in more rural areas, especially sometimes in some of the more, uh, around some of the Rust Belt cities, groups have ended up moving in a more ideological direction and have chosen, have found like the greatest affinity, the space of overlap within their group is more consistent with issue organizing around whether it's around healthcare, around minimum wage, around labor protections. And so they've ended up affiliating not with the Democratic Party, but rather moving into sort of the movement voter project, at becoming part of 501c3 or c4 progressive tables in their region. And that's fine too. I mean, I, I think the there's a tendency to among people who've gone one or the other of those routes or who are linked to them nationally to think that there is a right answer to that. But from where I'm standing, it looks to me like every group is making a, a decision, a choice of, that is rational within its own context in terms of how it's going to make an impact and what's the time frame on which it's going to be able to shape politics within its region. And that just looks different place to place. Part of the point you make is that there's an incredible heterogeneity in terms of what is the local institutional context between some places you have a very strong formal party organization and what you're doing is you're contesting control over it. Other places you have, you know, you're, you're knocking on an open door and you just kind of come in and, and take the seats and other places party might be so weak as to not not be worth anything. Right. And you can do other kinds of organizing um, that, that that have value. And unfortunately, I mean, the the challenge of saying that it's like good for people to organize locally is that it's hard to say anything like valid in general about local political activism. It's true, except it's not the case that, I mean, even just as you laid this out, it's not just sort of, it's random, we can't describe it. It's like, there's a city pattern. Like, tell, I can, at at this point, you know, I know when I go to investigate a new, like a new state, I can predict pretty consistently which kinds of people I'm going to find doing which kinds of things in rural areas, in ex-industrial areas, in upscale suburbs, and in like diverse and challenged cities. It is so consistent. So there is, it's just that the geography, the pattern is a geographic one and it's one that exists within space. It's not a homogenous blue state versus red state. It's it's sort of the political geography of America is is shaped by density and other things. And so the patterns are pretty consistent and also pretty complementary, or at least potentially complementary. There's no particular reason to think that, you know, you getting more involved in issue organizing around, you know, the fight for 15 or around healthcare access in your rural area is going to get in the way of my fight against the local democratic machine over here in this big city. Actually, on the contrary, like those might be pretty consistent with each other. We might find some common ground there. And meanwhile, if in the you know suburban area that sits in between us, we've got you know new democratic activists who've got the demographic winds at their back who are just like knocking over down ballot offices because they're the leading edge of a demographic shift that's bringing a whole bunch of people along with them. That's electing people to office who are going to be some of the time sympathetic to what we're doing. So there are ways in which this can be pretty synergistic as long as there's not an expectation that everyone is that we, everyone reached sort of premature consensus about everything. So you know, let's let's peer into the future. Uh, Joe Biden is president. Normally, what happens when a new president is elected is that you see a diminution of activity on the part of people who sort of agree with that person and an escalation of activism on the part of their opponents. And I'm not even that old, but I still remember each each time there's like a swing, people are like, no, this time we're not going to stop organizing. Like we're, we're going to really stick to it. But it never quite seems to happen. And, and I wonder what you're what you're seeing in that regard with groups that, you know, are not brand new anymore. Um, they got rid of the orange man. Uh, and like, what's what's next? Well, the thing is, of course, it was never from from four years ago onward. It was never just about the orange man. 
except for maybe like the a hyper online slice of people who were calling themselves the resistance. But for the folks that I'm talking about, they've been caring about a whole bunch of other offices for a long time. And they didn't, you know, they did not experience November 2020 as like a wonderful triumph. And now we can, you know, all go off and have brunch. They experienced it as like tragedy and heartbreak because a whole bunch of down ballot candidates who they had gotten to know personally, Mm -hmm. whether that's a congressional candidate or more likely a a down ballot state senator who they were hoping to flip a seat for a state house rep or so on, those folks lost, right? So Mm -hmm. the very fact that the 2020 election, although at the top of the ticket, Donald Trump lost, but at the bottom in in more down ballot offices, it was 2016. Or maybe in some places, a different way of thinking about it is that the surge in Republican anger around and right wing anger at the very local level around lockdowns and what they perceived as being inappropriate responses from their governors, especially if there were Democratic governors, in some ways is really reminiscent of the Tea Party surge. So that the, there's a piece of the 2020 on the Republican side, which I think actually looks sort of like 2009 on the Republican side. For people who are really attuned to local politics, I, I don't think the activist, the really existing locally engaged activist base experienced 2020 as a like terrifying harbinger of things to come on the left, like they're, and the, or the broad center of the left. So I don't hear anyone saying, we did everything we wanted, now we can sit back. I hear huge, immediate engagement in what are the next steps so that 2022 is not a disaster. Right. I mean, that's so Democrats, you know, generally and especially in in Pennsylvania as well, are sort of behind an eight ball of gerrymandering in in a lot of respects, particularly in state legislatures. And there was this hope that I wound up not being realized that, you know, if you looked at the polls, Trump was down so much, right, that it was like, okay, there's going to be this this landslide and we're going to win R plus six, R plus seven seats. And that's going to give us this like one off majority that we can use to fix all these structural issues and then fight on a level playing field. And that and that wound up not happening, right? That, you know, Trump Trump was down three or four, not eight or nine. You know, how do you sort of see people trying to move forward with that? It's like to change the, the rules of the game, you have to win first. And to win on a slanted playing field, you have to appeal to people you know, who are beyond the 50% point. And and I feel like that's psychologically difficult. You don't want to cater to a set of rules that feels unfair to you. Yeah, it's true. I think what's definitely true of the core grassroots activists that I'm describing to you is that they are now, by this point, very sophisticated and aware of a whole bunch of dimensions of procedural democracy, Mm -hmm. that the sort of things that up to and including gerrymandering, but that also go way beyond the simple fact of how legislative districts are drawn. So an example is that for some years, and especially since 2018, the Republicans in the state legislature have been hoping to create regional judicial districts to elect the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which is currently elected statewide. This is the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that throughout the old congressional map that the Republicans in the legislature had put in place. So they want to create a gerrymandered Supreme Court. Exactly. So that's that is not the language that the Republicans would use to describe (laughs) their plan. They would talk about, you know, the importance of representing the forgotten men and women of rural Pennsylvania. But yes, they were trying to create to trying to gerrymander the state Supreme Court. And this is, I think, the kind of thing which five years ago, who would have been the constituency to be up in arms in advance on the center to left about this? You would have had the like very attuned, folks in the labor world are very attuned to this kind of like changing the rules of the game, but they had, they did not have a lot of even choir to be preaching to, you know, five years ago and beyond. Um, whereas this year, you know, from the week after the election, as people finished up, you know, got the cramp out of their hands from writing postcards to voters for the the general election, they were also organizing like town halls and outreach meetings about judicial gerrymandering, how the Republicans were going to try to get it onto the primary ballot for 2021 in Pennsylvania, trying to sort of sneak it through and all the different ways that, that regular folks could be speaking out to try to educate people and avoid it. And I mean, I can't tell you how many meetings, dozens of meetings that Zoom meetings online by different grassroots groups, civic coalitions and so on were held around this. Ultimately, the the Republicans and the legislature decided to pull it back and not push it onto the primary ballot. 
I am not privy to their internal thinking about this, but if I were them, I would have taken note of the fact that they were getting a bunch of phone calls from people saying this was not a good idea, that a couple of Republicans on the, including on the Judiciary Committee, actually voted against it. And they tended to be Republican women elected in these suburban districts whose seats have been contested for each of the last two cycles and who know that for their constituents, gerrymandering is a big deal. It's a big, you know, red flag issue. So to me, that looks like a pretty concrete case where the fact of the ongoing grassroots mobilization changed the calculus of some of the players in Harrisburg in ways that are pushing back. And also, I mean, do you think the sort of class and educational composition of, of the new activists is is helpful in this regard? I mean, I think I, I think a lot of people it's it's easy to sort of condescend to uh, suburban women, I think, in the media a, a lot of the time. But this is also is a group of people, college graduates um, who are, you know, have the like the social capital to pay a lot of attention to weird stuff. Um, and possibly be more like self-empowered uh, on like under the radar type issues than I think a lot of other demographics. I mean, to me, that's part of what's what's interesting about it, right? It's used to be such a cliche that you can't get people interested in a procedural issue. Uh, but here you really did have people interested in the question of would there be a ballot initiative about changing the process by which judges were elected, right? And that's like a level of engagement that I think you just traditionally have not seen, I don't know, like the human mind be able to grasp. Yeah, it's absolutely. And it's part of what it's done also is, you know, in the movement network space of um, often staff led, but local groups trying to do really important organizing outreach to, you know, less advantaged urban communities, immigrant communities, and so on. That whole realm of organizing tended to be really dependent on external funders, national funders, large grants, and that money sloshes around once every four years. People were used to a, a really unhelpful cycle of, uh, you know, hyper-attention and resources being available in like the three to four months before an election, yeah. right? And they, they, they want the electoral votes, exactly. but otherwise aren't actually interested in like what happens in Scranton. Totally. And so we're like, you know, we're going to pour money into integrated voter engagement, which is, you know, supposedly all about building relationships, but we're only going to pour money into that for three months out of every four year cycle. You know, so the story that our money is telling about how we think building power happens is totally different from the words that we're saying about the importance of actually investing in communities in a long term way. So the fact that there, there's now in suburbs of big cities, but also the suburbs of small cities and also, you know, college towns and so on. You've brought a whole, people with some resources and some time into that realm has created something of a more sustainable set of local allies, local sources of, you know, small donor support or, or membership that hopefully is helping to work against some of the sort of short-sighted cyclical nature of what had been the, you know, funding model on the, on the left. Politics looks really different at the local level. And actually, that's not a separate story from what's going to happen at the national level. What's going to happen at the national level is going to be driven by changes that are worked and, and you know, new structures that are that people build up locally. And it's a, just it's a more complicated and kind of more encouraging, I would say, long term. There are more encouraging long term trends at this level than maybe visible at a distance. And I do always hope I, I like to scold the audience here. Um, if you care enough about politics to listen to a podcast like this, you should care enough to find something that is happening in your neighborhood or your town or your city and, you know, talk to other people uh, in real life after you get a vaccine or on Zoom now, because... Um, I'm going to say something I, I I have read from you, but it's like your leverage in politics is local, right? Regardless of where your sort of intellectual interests lie, uh, your voice counts for so much more in local politics. And so, you know, if you don't care about politics, like that's fine. But if you listen to this show, obviously you do care um, and you owe it to yourself um, and and. The, the world uh, to engage on a level where your engagement is going to actually matter. 
Yeah. And, and I think I'm happy to give people a money back guarantee. I think an hour of meeting with people within their community and talking about politics is actually going to make them feel better about themselves and have sort of more positive repercussions than the next hour spent listening to the podcast. Not your, the hour they spent listening to you can't be changed, but the next hour that they might also spend as a consumer of politics rather than as a maker of politics. Um, just as you say, I think they're going to, they're going to feel better and have more of an impact if they go out and do it with people around them. Yeah, listen, listen while driving to a meeting or something. Don't just. Don't that's just exactly right. That's that is that is that's what the T-shirt should say. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you so much, Lara Putnam, uh, University of Pittsburgh. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors and to our producer Eric Chinakis. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash V-I-Y-A.